it is startling the increase in the number of drug overdose deaths that we are seeing in the United States. The CDC's most recent data show that more than 100,000 people died from an overdose death in the 12th month period ending 2021. And that's um, a tw- over, an, over a 28% increase from the year before. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Monkeet Louie, International Features Editor for the BMJ. In previous episodes, we brought you in-depth interviews with some of the people who are shaping the world's response to the pandemic. And today, we have the latest in that series. I had the pleasure to speak to Admiral Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary of Health in the US government. Admiral Levine trained as a pediatrician before becoming firstly the State of Pennsylvania's Physician General and the State Secretary of Health. During President Joe Biden's administration, she was nominated to become the U.S. Assistant Secretary of Health. That led her to become a four-star admiral in the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, and thus the first openly transgender four-star officer in the U.S. In this podcast, we discuss the pandemic, but also the wider problems affecting America's health, notably inequality and the opioid crisis. We also discussed health and care of LGBTQ plus people in the US and around the world. Now over to Admiral Rachel Levine. This is something we've been asking all of our participants um, during the, the pandemic, which is just like, how are you? How are you generally? How have you, how have you been during this, uh, this past you know, year or so? Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that question. Uh, well, clearly the last um, two years have been very, very challenging uh, with COVID-19. So in 2020, I was the Secretary of Health for Pennsylvania, the state health official for Pennsylvania, and, and worked well to, to lead the governor and the state through COVID-19. That was um, obviously a significant challenge. Um, now I am just so honored to be the Assistant Secretary for, for Health and uh, to work on COVID-19, um, you know, for the with the federal government and work on many other health challenges. So um, uh, lots of challenges before us, but um, I'm, I'm well, I'm a positive and optimistic person and, you know, remain committed to protecting the health of everyone in the United States. And I mean, it's it's obviously a, a, a hectic and extraordinary time in to be, you know, involved in health politics and healthcare um, throughout the world and on many different sort of subjects. But I mean, if we could sort of start to just sort of break that down uh, a bit, um, beginning quite obviously with the, the pandemic. I mean, first, what are your thoughts at this time? How do you feel about the, the situation right now? Everyone's worried about Omicron and boosters. Um, but what are your thoughts generally about the pandemic and the way that the U.S. is, is, uh, is coping with it? You know, our top priority remains staying ahead of the virus and protecting our states and our communities with safe, effective and long lasting vaccines, especially in the context of this changing um, uh, viral and epidemiological landscape. Um, You know, it is truly the science which guides um, our recommendations and guides our adjustments uh, to those recommendations. So, you know, we are doing everything we can uh, to encourage people to get vaccinated. Uh, we have, uh, you know, accomplished a 
improved a tremendous amount um, in terms of our vaccinations in, in the last year, which started just a, a year ago uh, this week. Um, um, almost 500 million vaccines have been distributed. Um, we have uh, 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 had uh, uh, two, approximately 200 million people that have been that have been fully vaccinated, um, and we continue to emphasize that that the best way to protect yourself and your family and your community from COVID-19 is to receive one of the safe and effective vaccines. In addition now, especially with Omicron on the horizon, the best way for people to strengthen their protection is to get a booster shot um, as soon as they are eligible, according to the CDC recommendations. Boosters now are approved for all individuals over 16. And for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, that's six months past um, their second shot. Uh, for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is the one that actually that I received, it's two months after um, the, their, their shot was given. Um, you know, the news about Omicron should make it clearer than ever how important our vaccinations are in the United States and import, how important they are globally. And I mean, beyond the, the pandemic, we have we have other global health emergencies, of course. Another big one is, of course, the effect of climate change on health. You came to the UK for COP26. Um, I was wondering if you could give your thoughts about the, the impact of, of climate change, certainly from a healthcare standpoint. Well, absolutely. So it was uh, absolutely wonderful uh, to be in Scotland uh, for COP26. Uh, we're able to, to stay in Edinburgh and then travel to, to, to Glasgow. And I found that um, th that um, conference to be just so in, um, uh, stimulating and empowering about uh, about our ability to be able to address the health effects of climate change. Um, you know, it is so clear um, about the health impacts of climate change this year. So in addition to the challenges of COVID-19, in the United States, we have seen severe heat-related um, uh, uh, outbreaks, not only in our Southwest, which is where it, it you know, has been not uncommon, but even in the Northwest, in Seattle and Portland, saw, um, saw temperatures over 100 degrees with heat-related illnesses and heat-related deaths. We have seen wildfires throughout the United States and really throughout the world, uh, and, the, and then the smoke related illnesses associated with those wildfires. We have seen hurricanes. We have seen even potential tornadoes that are potentially associated with climate change that have caused us uh, severe um, uh, um, health impacts uh, th throughout the United States. And so, you know, we want, we, we have to, not just want to, we need to address these health impacts from climate change. And clearly the time is now. And we want to view this as we do everything else with this uh, with this health equity lens. COVID-19 has highlighted the depth and breadth of the health disparities that exist throughout the United States. And um, we, we and we need to address, you know, these impacts um, uh, for communities, which have always felt, you know, the, the impacts for, uh, of many different health challenges uh, more severely. So we have a new office 
at um, HHS called our Office of Climate Change and Health Equity. And there are three main areas of work. The first is to build the resistance of communities to the health impacts of climate change, especially those communities uh, with a health equity lens. And we're going to work with our regional offices to tailor those solutions uh, to each region's unique needs. Um, the second is to work with our health systems on recovery and resilience to the impacts of climate change. And the third is actually to partner um, throughout the government and actually with our private sector for uh, to, to help the nation's hospitals and health systems to actually reduce their greenhouse gas emissions um, uh, uh, th throughout the de uh, this decade and beyond. So we have um, many different goals for this new office that's going to work across the HHS, work across the administration and work with the private sector. And I mean, to move, uh, there's obviously so many different health subjects we could we could talk about. Um, I kind of wanted to ask, like, what are the other health issues that, that concern you? I mean, there's a number I can mention, um, opioid crisis. You know, I know you've, you, you've worked a lot with getting better access to naloxone uh, in the past for, for overdoses. Um, what, what, what other health issues besides, besides the kind of the major two that we've just spoken about that are you, do you really have on your agenda for your time in office? And I mean, what do you see as the, the kind of major hopes and maybe major obstacles that you would stand in your way of achieving what you want to in that time? Sure. So I would like to highlight the mental health challenges that we are seeing in the United States, um, uh, particularly mental health challenges for youth, but it really is across the lifespan. Um, the Surgeon General had an advisory last week about serious mental health challenges that we're seeing in children and adolescents. And it's really a call to action on those issues. And also, as you mentioned, one of the serious mental health challenges that we're facing is substance use and and overdoses. Um, you know, uh, it, it is it is startling the increase in the number of drug overdose deaths that we are seeing in the United States. The CDC's most race, recent data show that more than 100,000 people died from an overdose death in the 12 month period ending 2021. And that's um, a over, an, over a 28% increase from the year before. And so we, we need to eliminate barriers to prevention, um, treatment and recovery. And so we have a new overdose prevention strategy at the Department of Health and Human Services, led by our secretary, Secretary Becerra. Um, and there are four uh, pillars to that strategy. Uh, the first is prevention. The second is harm reduction. The third pillar is treatment. And the fourth is recovery. And so we want to be novel and innovative in all of those aspects, prevention in schools and communities, and working on prevention with the medical community to make sure that, for example, with opioids, that there are, that we prescribe opioid medications very carefully and judiciously. Um, the second is harm reduction. Harm reduction thought very broadly. That includes the naloxone that you mentioned. You know, we have a, a, a relatively inexpensive, safe and effective reversal agent for overdoses due to opioids. We want to do everything we can to increase the distribution and the administration of that for our first responders 
purse, but also for the public to carry naloxone. I carry naloxone in my purse to be able to, you know, offer that life-saving treatment. Uh, we also include um, fentanyl strips. So we know that synthetic fentanyl compounds are one of the uh, the greatest risks for overdose death. Um, and you know, we want pe people suffering from the disease of addiction to be able to detect fentanyl so that they can either not use that substance or take the proper precautions, for example, with naloxone to reverse an overdose. We also want to continue to expand syringe service programs, evidence-based syringe service programs where people can get linked uh, to, to prevention and care for HIV and hepatitis, but also to receive naloxone and fentanyl strips and even linkage to treatment, such as medication-assisted treatment. That brings us to treatment as the third pillar. We want to make sure that there is access to evidence-based standard of care treatment, including that medication for opioid use disorder, which is really the standard of care. And then other treatments, for example, uh, for methamphetamine addiction or for, um, for cocaine addiction. Um, one, one behavioral treatment is contingency management treatment, which is novel and evidence-based. We want to make sure then, finally, that people have access to recovery services. And so we want to do this on a, with, a, with that strong health equity lens with an evidence-based innovative approach. And, you know, working together across our department, across the administration, with local and state health departments, of course, also partnering with, with law enforcement and the DEA, we're going to work to be successful. That's a lot. That's a lot on your plate for the. That's a lot <laughs> for the time of your things. Um, if I could just follow up a couple of the things that you mentioned, because they, they interestingly lead back to, to to parts of your earlier in your career. I know that you worked a lot on mental health. You're obviously a pediatrician um, as well. I mean, do you how, do you feel like the, the the mental health of the youth in particular has gotten a lot worse? Certainly over the last couple of years with the pandemic, with lockdowns, with schools um, having different pressures. Certainly with the pressures that are going on all around society. Um, do you? How do you? Did you? Does that compare with what you saw earlier on in your career? You know, well, we have seen many mental health challenges for children and adolescents. Uh, so you are correct. I'm a pediatrician and actually an adolescent medicine subspecialist. And so that integration between physical health issues and mental health issues is actually where I've worked for many, many years um, in academic medicine at Mount Sinai and at Penn State, and then continued that work in Pennsylvania. Uh, we are seeing an increase in the mental health challenges uh, of our children and adolescents. And this has been clearly exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of illness, in terms of illness and, and potentially death of loved ones, in terms of isolation, uh, challenges with school, many different challenges that our youth faced. And then again, that was highlighted by our fantastic Surgeon General's advisory um, last week, which was really um, you know, uh, a, a landmark advisory of, um, emphasizing um, how challenging these is and then offering solutions. So we need to work um, um, uh, across HHS, across the administration, um, uh, really an all-hands-on-deck approach, including, of course, our partners in the state and in the communities on this um, to, uh, to prevent mental health challenges among youth and then to offer uh, treatment and recovery. And so to work with, with our youth and with their families, of course, to address this issue. Do you feel that the attitudes towards mental health have uh, have changed a lot in the in the years or the decades since you were you were last working on the front line? 
Um, I feel they have, but we have a lot of, we still have work to do. You know, we have to address the stigma associated with, with, with mental health conditions and the stigma associated with the disease of addiction. Um, and we, we have to, we, we, we have to um, get past and, and, and really uh, work through those health disparities, make sure that people have access to the best evidence-based, evidence-based treatment we can provide. And I mean, you also mentioned um, the crossover of many of these areas we've spoken about with um, HIV AIDS. I know that's another area that you worked quite a lot on uh, earlier in your career. Do you see lessons from what you saw there working on on the front lines of medicine with what you are now seeing both in terms of the pandemic and in terms of, as we we saw about drug addiction, um, the opioid crisis and so on? Are there lessons that you can apply and that you're trying to apply in your time in office? Sure. Um, one is the stigma, right? So there was obviously tremendous stigma associated with HIV um, uh, over the last four decades. Uh, I think we have made progress on that, but we have more work to do. Um, the second is how inconnect- interconnected we all are um, and, and the importance of public health. Um, and public health is absolutely critical. COVID-19 has shown that and uh, COVID-19 and and public health is critical in terms of how we address HIV. The final lesson is the, is the critical importance of the social determinants of health. You know, I mean, we have made so much progress in terms medically in terms of HIV. We don't have a cure, but we have safe and effective and really pretty easily accessible treatments uh, to 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 treat people with HIV so that it is a uh, it's like a chronic illness. We have the ability to have people be U equals you, which is um, undetectable equals untransmissible. And we have PrEP. We have a medicine that can prevent HIV. Those would have seen like miracles uh, when HIV started. And I was a pediatric resident at Mount Sinai in New York City in the 80s. Yet we really challenged with with those social issues uh, to to get those preventative and and treatment um, um, medications to the public. So that includes the social determinants of health. Those aspects aspects of health, um, which, um, which really cross many, many different lines. Um, housing is a health issue from that perspective. Transportation is a health issue. Economic opportunity is a health issue. It, um, education is a health issue. Nutrition is a health issue. That's where I think we're most challenged. And so, you know, we have a program called Ending the HIV Epidemic, EHE, uh, which is led through HIV. HHS. Um, our office has a prominent role with that in collaboration with many other um, many other offices, the CDC, the NIH, um, HRSA, CDC, uh, CMS, and others. And so we have to get to those social determinants of health, which are barriers uh, to access to care. And again, that health equity lens that we've been talking about. So we need to take all of those measures and incorporate it into our work to end the HIV epidemic and the White House's national HIV strategy. Thank you very much for that. Um, the, it would be you know, remiss of me not to ask you, you are, you are obviously the first um, transgender official to be confirmed into office, the first four-star admiral, uh, transgender four-star four admiral. 
Um, we at the BMJ have been covering over the past year or so a lot more on LGBT issues, certainly both in terms of patients' access to healthcare and some of the obstacles they face, both you know here in Europe and and in the US as well as in the rest of the world, like such as India, um, and also what it means perhaps to be an LGBT uh, physician, you know, working in, in the medical profession. I mean, I, I wondered if I could ask you, you know, what does what do you feel that your status and the um, the positions that you find yourself in now um what do you feel that that enables in terms of lgbt rights both for patients and indeed your fellow uh professionals well thank you for that question you know it is truly an extraordinary honor uh to be the assistant secretary for health at hhs um, and to serve as a four-star admiral in the united states public health service commission corps it's also a profound responsibility you know um i i appreciate the the roles that i have for the impact that i can make in terms of policy uh and and also in terms of advocacy for the historic nature of what it symbolizes um, what it's also clear is that I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me um, and uh, who have labored for decades have, on, on these issues, uh, both those known and but those unknown. And, you know, um, I, I hope that my appointment um, as a transgender individual is first of many more to come, uh, that we can have, you know, we can continue to emphasize uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I have always brought, you know, gotten strength from the from the challenges that I have overcome. I really try to bring compassion uh, that, that I learned in my clinical training uh, to all of the public health work uh, that, that I that I bring. Um, and so, you know, we want to continue to work forward uh, and to move forward um, on all of those different fronts. With again, for health equity, uh, for diversity and inclusive. And my impression is that there's still quite a, a way to go. Obviously, we've made tremendous progress over the last few decades uh, on these issues, but that there's certainly in terms of acceptance, in terms of like, as you say, it, complete equity in terms of the, the number of um, uh, individuals that we're seeing sort of coming through to the, the profession. Um, where do you see the, the, the US in terms of acceptance of LGBT sure. doctors uh, or indeed like patients trying to get access to healthcare? Sure. I think we, we have made so much progress and I'm a positive and an optimistic person. I think we will continue to make progress, but challenges remain. And I think it's critical that we make progress for everyone. Right. Is that is and that's what I try to do, given the the um, the, uh, the honor and responsibilities that I have. Uh, I think that we, we have to bring everyone up and we have to make progress for all. I think that there are particularly vulnerable um, uh, populations within our LGBTQ plus community. Uh, that includes our youth, our seniors, uh, LGBTQI plus immigrants, and particularly LGBTQI plus individuals of color. So I'd like to highlight, you know, the challenges of transgender individuals of color, transgender women of color, who are not only at risk of, of discrimination or harassment, but they're at risk of violence and murder. Um, so, you know, and, and, you know, we in November, we had Transgender Day of Remembrance, where, where we remember and honor them. So we, we have, a, we've made progress, but we have a lot of work to do. Okay, and uh, one final question. I realize we're, we're just running out of time, but I've, as as, a, as the, the journal of, of doctors and physicians, um, 
I wanted to ask you finally, you know, what does it mean to you to be a doctor and what does it, what motivated you to become one and what does it mean going forward now as, you know, being at such a position to lead in the, in the profession in this way? Sure. So as a young person, you know, I found my passion in serving through medicine um, and, and uh, in uh, medical school and in, in my training. And I have always found that my career is just tremendously rewarding because as a physician, you know, all we try to do is help people. Um, and so through my work in academic medicine, I would try to help people through clinical care in pediatrics and adolescent medicine to help children, adolescents and their families um, to do education and teach medical students and and trainees how to do that um, through clinical research and developing um, you know, new ways to do that even better. Um, and then through administration in terms of developing programs. Well, through my service in Pennsylvania and now nationally in public health, uh, I'm trying to continue that uh, to, to, to demonstrate my compassion and my desire to help people from that public health perspective with that broader brush. And so um, that's what I have tried to do throughout my career and what I'm doing now. Brilliant. Well, I wish you all the best in that and with the, the rest of your time in office. Uh, Admiral Levine, it's been a real honour to speak to you. And thank you once again for offering your time with the BNJ. Thank you so much. Please take care. You've been listening to Admiral Rachel Levine, the US Assistant Secretary of Health. We have more of these in-depth interviews happening, focusing on the pandemic and beyond. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all other major podcast apps so you don't miss out on those. We'll be back next week on the BMJ podcast with more from our Doctor Informed series and trying to answer, how do you know if your concerns are worth raising? I'm Monkeet Louie. Bye for now. <laughs>